Now, Father, we are thankful that we can be here this evening to study your word, to be refreshed by your word, and we know that as we face different issues in life, that it is your word that gives us uh, hope and confidence. It's your word that gives us uh, the information we need and tells us the skills that you've provided us that we can handle in every situation in life. Father, we remember this evening the Ingram family. Pray for them at this time, and they're all certain and sure that uh, Richard is face-to-face with you now, and so we rejoice over his uh, victory over death that the Lord Jesus Christ has given him, and just thankful for his his witness, his dedication, his uh, desire to know you and to know your word over the years that provided such a great example and uh, found good, solid Bible teaching for the family and really provided a tremendous example for them. Father, we uh, thank you that we can be here this evening to study your word, and we pray that you'd help us to understand what we're, what the word says and help us to see how uh, it applies and what the implications are from this great passage we're studying. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 1, and we're still in the same section, and we may be here for two or three lessons because there are so many uh, tremendous uh, applications and implications from this particular text. And so um, I want to develop some things out of this text and help us to understand some things that relate to just, uh, I think they relate to a lot of basic issues, but we're going to, I'm going to try to stay out of the stratosphere a little bit. When I get into some of these topics, I can uh, I can start flying pretty high and leave people behind. So we're going to try to, you know, fly low and, and keep things uh, uh pretty relevant. At the bottom line, I want you to think about the fact that in this passage, in verses 18 to 23, we have one of what I would think are four or five of the most significant passages in the scripture that talk about the nature of man. There's other passages that talk about sin and the specifics of sin, but this passage talks about the consequences of sin on human beings, on who we are as creatures in the image of God, and specifically on our thought processes. It's important to understand this because as we look at this passage and we see the descriptions that are there in verses 18 through 23, there are implications that we can then take from this text that relate to understanding how to communicate the gospel to someone who isn't saved because they're in the position of being spiritually dead and spiritually unable to uh, understand fully the, the Word of God. And, and I, I want to look at some things here because this is there's a, there's a lot of controversy over this. You have a very strong Calvinist position on these particular verses that flow from their uh, theology of to- what they call total inability. And for in Calvinism, some of you may not be familiar, but in their view on on, on uh, salvation, the doctrines of salvation, they focus on uh, five key principles, and these came out of what was uh, a meeting, a theological synod in Holland in uh, about the same time. You know, this is sixteen. Uh, this is a two thousand eleven. The uh, 400th anniversary of the publication of the King James Bible. And so I'll come back to talking about the Bible in honor of that anniversary sometime later in the year. But just after that, in about 1615, 1616, there was this synod that, that was held in Holland 
Among the Dutch Reformed Church is controversy that occurred because of the teaching of some of the professors that uh, took the teaching on uh, free will too far in one direction. And so there was a huge split that occurred and controversy, and they brought up a couple of these professors on on charges. One of the professors who had died by the time that they had this synod, his name was Jacob Arminius or James Arminius, from which we get the term Arminianism. Not uh, Arminians are not Armenians. Armenians live over in Armenia, just to the east of Turkey and up north of uh, Syria and Iraq. And Armenians are not Armenians. If they are anything, they are Armenian, Christ- Armenian Christians and not Armenian Christians. Have I got you all confused now? So Armenians don't believe in, uh, they believe that uh, in, in the, their full extreme form, they don't believe that's, that Adam's sin really affected anybody else. They believe that Adam's sin, um, that each person is born, therefore, in the same uh, unadulterated, untainted uncorrupted state that Adam was created, and so every individual makes a decision on their their own life and their and which way they will go. So theoretically, people can live their life sinlessly. Uh, no, they would say no one does, but they would say that theoretically they could. Uh, they believe that uh, God's choice is totally uh, dependent upon human choice, they believe that, uh, and all of this has to be understood as an integrated system. That's one of the important things about theology is, is people talk, use this imagery of a seamless garment, that all the aspects of a theological system must integrate together. So these, are, these all fit together. They believe that God's uh, movement, God's uh, wooing of the unbeliever is completely uh, resistible. That's because the individual is really in charge and not God. It, it, it is just, it's the polar opposite of strong five-point Calvinism. We would be somewhere in between, but probably on what some have called the uh, light or moderate Calvinist side, although I don't like to use those terms because in terms of the five points of Calvinism, I would redefine all of them, but they would not, none of them would be redefined in the way that Arminians define them. So the uh, uh, student of Arminius, who was teaching at the time, his name was Derek von Kornherd, a name that you will never, probably never hear again, and you've never heard before, but just for sake of historical accuracy, he was the one who was actually up on charges. And so the Arminians brought together a five points, what they called their remonstrance. And in response to their five points... The Calvinists had five counter-remonstrants, and we usually refer to them by the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Um, some people have somewhat facetiously said that you either have TULIP theology or DAISY theology. And DAISY theology, that's Arminianism, and so you sit out with your DAISY and you talk about God. Does he love me? He loves me today. He loves me not. He loves me today. He loves me not. Because in Arminianism, you can you can lose your salvation. You can choose not to be saved anymore. So there's no eternal security. In fact, it's interesting when you're in in the United States, because of the context of the debates that have occurred here over the last uh, hundred years or so, 
the issue in the debates around Calvinism usually center around uh, unconditional election, which is the U in TULIP, the T is total inability, and the U is unconditional election. And so the debate centers around that, and the L in TULIP, which is limited atonement. Christ died only for the elect. Unconditional election means that that God did not condition his choice of who would be saved on anything that people do, including have including positive volition or believing in Jesus. He chooses them apart from that. We would not agree with that. Uh, the absence of a stated condition does not mean the absence of a condition. Work with that a little while. The absence of a stated condition, which is what you have in Scripture, you have many statements that God chooses or elects those. The absence of a stated condition does not mean the absence of a condition. Just because there's no text that says he chose those who have positive volition to believe in Jesus, there's no straight Scripture that says that, doesn't mean that in his omniscience and in his knowledge that when he took into account all of the factors that that would have been one of the factors that his omniscience was uh, omniscience was aware of and would have been a part of his choice or the process of his choosing. So you have um, to- total inability, which means man can't do anything. He is, he is, and they always stress this emphasis on man is spiritually dead. And they miss the boat there. Spiritual death doesn't mean uh, that he's non-existent. Spiritual death means that we're separated from God and we don't have a spiritual life or an oper- oper- operation in re- of our spiritual life in relationship to God. It's non-operable. It doesn't mean that we can't think, that the unbeliever can't think or can't understand some things to a limited degree. So you have total inability, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and then their, their P is for, for perseverance. And so those five points make up what is considered to be Calvinism. And that is, I would refer to that as Dordian Calvinism or High Calvinism. Now, we get people every now and then who use this term hyper-Calvinist. A hyper-Calvinist is not a Dordian Calvinist. Now, those of us who are somewhat uh, down the line more moderate Calvinists, people who tend to be more moderate, in their Calvinism, often hear somebody who's a little more Calvinistic and they say, oh, well, he's a hyper-Calvinist. The term hyper-Calvinism is actually a technical theological term. And a hyper-Calvinist is some, goes beyond, I mean, they emphasize the sovereignty of God in an extreme way and they go beyond high Calvinism. A, a hyper-Calvinist, an independent Baptist uh, <clears throat> in, in England, in the 18th century, for example, were hyper-Calvinists. They believed that if God, those who God elected would be saved. And you didn't need to tell them the gospel. God, If God chose them, he would save them without any help from you or I. That was their view. In fact, uh, when um, uh, Carey, who was a missionary to the uh, to India and was one of the very first modern missionaries, came back to England telling all of the wonderful things that God was doing among the Hindu people in India, and he was giving a presentation to a group of Baptist theologians. 
One of them stood up and told him exactly that. Said, "Young man, and his name was William Carey. Young man, if um, God wants them to be saved, He will save them without any help from you or I." So that's hyper Calvinism. You don't have to even give people the gospel. And um, so now you can use the term a little more correctly. But all of this relates to understanding the impact of sin on man's uh, intellectual abilities, his ability to understand truth uh, after, after, uh, after the fall. And it's important to understand this because if you're talking to somebody who is an unbeliever and they are spiritually dead in the sense of, of Dordian Calvinism and to- total inability, then they really uh, can't understand and won't ever understand anything you're saying unless uh, they are the elect. God the Holy Spirit won't even make it clear to them. They're not the elect, so he's not going to be moving upon them in an irresistible manner. And um, so that lends itself, if you push it, to go to the extreme of hyper-Calvinism. It also lends itself to a lot of rationalization that occurs that well, if God wants them to be saved, they'll be saved. I just will let somebody else who's a little better at it witness to them than, than me. And so it minimizes within hyper, I mean, within hyper Calvinism and Dordian Calvinism, there is a minimalization of human responsibility because they put so much emphasis on God's sovereignty. And as a result, when they come to passages like this and they talk about uh, that uh, the, uh, for example, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They take that last clause, and it can be taken a number of different ways grammatically. They take that last clause as being a, a gnomic or universal truth, and that is that all men suppress all truth at all times. Therefore, the unbeliever can't even exercise positive volition to God uh, in a non-meritorious manner. So you can see why this is a crucial watershed. It's also important to understand the nature of man and the nature of the unbeliever's ability to understand and what he's capable of on his own versus, as well as what the Holy Spirit does. Obviously, the Holy Spirit works on the uh, understanding of the unbeliever, to understand the word, but he, I would not agree that he does so in an irresistible manner as, as Calvinism teaches. We'll touch on that just a little bit. My main point here is not to focus on that, but it, it's sort of to set up something so that you understand why there's a, the controversy here. And, and when you come to this passage, it has a lot of implications for witnessing to people. Now, every now and then, when I get a little bit uh, either A, I get a little bit bored, or B, somebody sends me a link, and I think that was the case in this event. Somebody sent me a link to one of these website discussion groups, and I usually don't like to go there because I usually try to stay in fellowship. And I understand that in that that we all learn a certain way. We learn by having uh, by talking things out. <clears throat> At least I do. I'm a verbal processor. And uh, that's one reason my friend Tommy Ice and I got together in seminary because we would sit and we'd talk for hours, but we would work things out in our thinking by talking talking it out. 
And um, when we left seminary, we were living in different parts of the world back before they had all the wonderful things they have now. And remember back then you had to pay like uh, 50 cents a minute just for long distance. I had horrible long distance bills. But we would talk, talk a lot of these things out. Well, um, that's sort of what happens on a lot of these chat rooms now. Trouble is you have people to get on there and they're spiritual infants and they're making dogmatic statements about theological truth. And there was uh, somebody who was pontificating on how uh, Charlie Clough was really a hyper-Calvinist in his understanding of of uh, apologetics because he holds to what's called presuppositional apologetics, which is comes out of a Reformed background. But t- the total inability that is inherent within five-point Calvinism and the, the some of the major thinkers within Doherty, uh, within the presuppositional camp are Doherty and Calvinists. Uh, that's that's not a it's not necessary. It's not a logically consistent conclusion if you understand anything about presuppositional apologetics. And so this individual who was I have no idea who it was. People always have names. It was a couple two or three years ago. But I was pretty irritated because it was just obvious that somebody who had a thimble full of, of theological knowledge was talking about something that they really didn't understand and drawing extremely wrong conclusions about it. And so that's part of why I want to get into this is this is important and we have to understand what what Paul is saying here and what the implications are. So just by way of review, in verse 17, Paul says that uh, in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Romans is all about righteousness. I think I'm impressed with that more now than I ever have been in the past, and I've been pretty impressed with it in the past. But it's all about righteousness. And I was listening to a, when I was preparing for the uh, pastor's conference, I went back to listen to this series of recordings that have that are available uh, on, that of Lewis Berry Chafer teaching a um, spiritual life conference at Dallas Theological Seminary back around 1949, 50, 51, somewhere in there, not about just within a year or two of his of his dying, and he's just got this gravelly, raspy old man's voice on a wire recorder, so it's a little hard to understand, but he says, "Men." To understand Romans, you have to understand that God gives us righteousness, and that's what Romans is all about. God gives us righteousness. And I thought, boy, I never heard it crystallized quite that clearly. But that's what salvation is. God gives us righteousness. And so Romans is, in some sense, a defense of the righteousness of God in light of the fact that there are of all of the things that happen in history, the things that happen in terms of individuals' lives, and how can God hold people accountable when they have they never heard anything about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, or they never heard anything about Jesus? How can God uh, bring condemnation upon the unsaved who never heard uh, the name of Jesus? And so Romans answers that by one of the most brilliant explanations of the of of 
God, the process of justification and the spiritual life and the implications of it. So that is what Paul develops here. In it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, that is justification faith, to faith, that is sanctification faith. As it is written, the uh, justified by faith shall live, as we saw that in the uh, when I went through that passage, that... Um, that should, that's how that should be translated. And then in verse 18, he goes on to, and now he's going to explain this. He's going to build out the explanation for us so we can understand the implications of what he just said. So it's for the wrath of God. I pointed out that is God's judgment on man in time is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the contrast is between the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of men who, and, and so it's focusing on the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So twice we have the use of the negative here the, of unrighteousness, and we have this emphasis on suppressing the truth, that there is, from Paul's perspective, one truth. There is an absolute universal truth. We're not left to just sort of guess our way or feel our way blindly through the room uh, everybody's truth is okay, your truth is fine, my truth is fine, whatever works for you, that's a 20th century uh, solution. We all have our own truth. Uh, we can't go around judging anybody else's truth. Well, how do you know that's true? Is that because you just said, the way you just stated, that was a universal truth. So which universal truth are we going to use? A lot of logical inconsistencies in that position, when you have destroyed reason, which is what happened in, when we came out of the Enlightenment, when you've destroyed reason and you've destroyed knowledge, the possibility of objective knowledge, which is basically what happened in the eight, in, I'm excuse me, in the 19th century, then you're only left with with skepticism and despair, because if you can't know truth then you can't answer any questions, and life is meaningless. Now, people can't live that way, so they then they have to leap into some sort of mysticism where they just conjure up their own answers because that, that's what works for them. Because the alternative is despair and gloom and a meaningless life. In verse 19, Paul says, "...because what may be known of God or known about God..." is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And so I developed this little diagram here where we have the circle representing the human soul, and of course it's black because it is impacted by sin. It is a fallen soul. But even inside the fallen soul, Paul says that something may be known about God within every single human being, no matter who they are and that God has shown it to them, and that's the external evidence of God. So I have a triangle representing the Trinity with God in the triangle and the, the two lines going back and forth showing that there is a resonance that occurs within every single person. When they look on God's creation, there is something that vibrates, for lack of a better term, something that resonates within the soul so that they know they know internally, first of all, that God exists. Every human being is born. We're not a blank slate. 
We're, you know, as Aristotle said, a tabula rasa. We're not a tabula rasa. Every human being is born with the knowledge that God exists. And then God gives evidence of his existence throughout every detail of, of the creation from the macro and how all of the uh, galaxies and how the planets operate all the way down to the micro where we can uh, study a, a bloom on a rose. You can study a, an atom or a molecule. And from the smallest micro particle that we can think of all the way up to the largest, everything shows something about God's power and sh- something about God's, God's character which is what verse 20 says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Interesting juxtaposition there of terms, as I pointed out, being understood by the things that are made so that by looking at what God has made, we can understand certain things about God's uh, God's character. Uh, Even, that is, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. This is the answer to that time, that that question of the ages. What about those who never heard? They've heard enough, or actually they've seen enough in the universe to where they they know God exists, so that they're without excuse. They can't say, well, God, I never knew, because God made it evident within them, and it's evident outside of them. Every person from Christopher Hitchens to uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare to whomever, they all at one point knew that God existed. And that's where volition enters in. And at that time, they could desire to know more about God or not to know more about God. And at that point, that, that volition is not meritorious. That's not the cause of anything. And they can still suppress a lot of truth because we still do that. Even as believers, we suppress truth and unrighteousness. So that doesn't mean that they can't understand some, some things. Now, there are some people who will say, well, they, they can't. And let me just, I just want to point one thing out. You can hold your, hold your uh, place here, and let's just turn over a couple of books to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Second Corinthians four four. Well, let's pick up verse three because that has some implication. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, now notice if it's veiled, it's not invisible. There's a difference between something that's veiled and something that's invisible. If you see a woman wearing a veil, you can still see some outline of her face. Uh, you can still see some some suggestion of of uh, what's there, even though it may not be very clear. Paul says the go- our gospel is veiled; it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now, here's my question to the. Dordian or hyper-Calvinist, to anybody, anybody who takes that first tea and tulip the way a Calvinist does as total inability. If, ma- if spiritual death means man is unable and incapable, 
in a, apart from uh, apart from the, any movement of the Holy Spirit, to have any perception whatsoever of the existence of God because he suppressed it in unrighteousness, or any perception of the truth of the gospel, why did Satan have to blind their mind? I mean, if they're so dead and dark that they can't, it's impossible for them to even have a, a glimmer, then why does Satan need to blind their mind? Satan has to blind their mind because there is still certain capabilities of the fallen mind to understand the existence of God and to want to know more. It's not soteriological knowledge, but it's knowledge that gives him an opportunity to uh, choose to know more or less. So the implication of 2 Corinthians 4.4 is that the that the fallen man can know he can have some he has some light available it's not much it's not going to get him saved it's not going to give him the content of the gospel but he does have a certain amount of light so that he does know that god god exists and he can want to know more and he can uh understand some things but he can't understand him them in a spiritually full way now I'm not sure of the right way to express this. I have talked to unbelievers who can give me the gospel as as good, if not better, than anybody in this room. But they don't really understand it. But they understand it in a certain academic sense. And they probably know more about the gospel than a lot of Christians do. And I've had And I've had that experience over the years, but they don't have a... You know, they can't really put two and two together spiritually, that ultimately comes from from the work of the Holy Spirit. But they understand it at a certain level. So there is a measure of understanding on the part of uh, of the unbeliever. But what he is doing is he is suppressing that truth. He is in rebellion. He's rejecting the authority of God because he says, I don't like what God says. If God defines truth, I don't like it. I want to create my own truth. And so... He, re- he rejects it. Now, last time I said that when we get into this passage, we're addressing several uh, key questions, issues of life. I want to really start at the bottom and work up. The question where most people live is the bottom question. The question where academics and philosophers live sometimes is the top question. But the average person sitting in the pew, the average person you're going to talk to at work, is really concerned about how to make decisions about the details of life. How are we to behave? And that is a question that that relates to ethics. That's the term philosophy uses. It's a term we use in in law, politics. Uh, we would re- we would refer to it perhaps as spirituality. But that that that's the realm where this takes place. How is a human being supposed to behave in marriage? In family, what's the role of uh, husbands and wives? Who does what? Who's responsible for what? What's the role of parents? What's the limitations of uh, the role of parents? What's the extent of their responsibility? What about educating their children? What about the role of schools? Uh, What about uh, politics? Who's right? Who's wrong? Should we be involved in Libya? Should we uh, help out the uh, rebels in Yemen? Uh, where do we draw these decisions? All that has to do with just the basic practical decision-making we have in life. Economics. 
not in terms of macroeconomic theory, whether you are uh, Keynesian or Chicago School of Economics or Austrian School of Economics, but just how should we spend our money? Should we have a credit card? Should we get? Should we buy a lot of things in debt? Should we use a debit card? And I heard yesterday that some banks are going up, trying to go up five dollars for use of an ATM if you're not their customer. So you have all of these questions. Economics is born. How do we spend money? How, how do what, what's, How do we divide it in a, in a marriage between husband and wife? Well, to answer ethical questions, you really presupposes that you've answered. The, the, the second question going from the bottom up, and that is how do you know what's right? We have a question of knowledge here. We can sit around all day long. You can come up with your view, and I can come up with my view, and you're sitting there talking to your, your next-door neighbor. You're talking to somebody at work, and uh, they say, well, I don't think we should do that. Hmm. How do you know that? I mean, think about this in terms of a... a lengthy witnessing opportunity where you're having a conversation with somebody. And they say, well, how do you know? As soon as somebody uses those words like should and ought, they've immediately brought in a value system. Where do you get their value system? How do you know that that's true? How do you know that's right? How do you know you're right and how do you know I'm wrong? Uh, how do we know the Democrats are right or the Republicans are wrong or vice versa? How do you know? That's, that's the question. Before you can start making these, these ought and should judgment type questions and decisions at the, in the ethical realm, you have to decide how do we know it's true? How do we know there is truth? And, and the very fact that we talk about it implies that there is truth, that just the, the way it's amazing, the way God structured vocabulary and communication, that when we talk about something, anything, you talk about a tree, you talk about a lazy boy recliner, it can't mean anything else. It has limitations to what that word means. To be able to even communicate at the most primitive level presupposes that there are absolutes. It presupposes that there are specific set meanings that can't be changed and aren't going to evolve over time. So that saying the sky is blue today doesn't, in five or six years, mean the sky is red. Um, so we have to under, understand these, these things. So when we look at epistemology, we're concerned about truth claims. But as soon as you imply the, those ideas of, of truth in right and wrong, that also implies accountability and responsibility and an, a response to authority. Somebody says, this is the right thing to do, this is true, then that, and that's where it, where it transitions down to ethics. There's an authority response at that point. Well, who's the authority? Who's the source of truth? Where do we get this idea of truth? And that takes us to the next level up, um, which is how do we know what's the ultimate authority in life? How do we know that there, if there's a God, a capital G or lowercase g? The second question is the realm of epistemology, which is just the how do we know what's how do we know anything to the question of, of metaphysics, which is the question of existence. 
And there we have to answer the question, is there something or is there nothing? I mean, this is the most fun, foundational thing around. Is there nothing? Well, we can't really say that there's nothing. So if there's something, then where did the something come from? Did it come from something that was impersonal and just material, or did it come from something that was personal? Uh, what's the diff- what do these words personal and impersonal mean? So we, ha- we have to answer those questions. Now, when we have the Bible, we have the authoritative information from God who created everything to tell us, give us the answers from this. But most if people don't have the Bible, they're trying to figure this out. And so they come up with different things, such as arguments for the existence of God and philosophy and other, other things of that nature. And so once we answer the question, is there something to exist, then that is going to necessarily impact our understanding of knowledge, where knowledge comes from and where truth comes from and how we're going to define truth. Now, when we're, we're looking at these types of questions, ultimately we're asking uh, the question, is there real meaning and order and structure to the universe or not? That's basically the question that is asked. Now, people may not come right out and say it that way, but that's, that's what they're asking. And to put it down at a more base level, it's the, a basic level, it's the question, does my life have meaning and value or not? And so when we get it down there, there's really only two answers everything can boil down to. There's only two answers. The first is that there's really no logical, rational answer to that question. We just don't know. Now, that's that's pretty depressing. We, we don't know if there's any meaning. There's not any meaning. And then those who are, if you're consistent with that view that we don't know, that there's no logical, rational answer, then what you must conclude is that existence is is meaningless, that everything is governed by pure random actions. There's no purpose, there's no meaning, there's no real cause and effect uh, in relationship. Uh, in anything in the universe, it's all purely random. Nobody can live like that, though. No matter who, what philosophers may try to uh, articulate and defend such a position, sooner or later, they're going to make statements that indicate that they can't live like that. The most atheistic, deterministic person that you can possibly think of who's rejected the existence of God, rejected any form of creation, rejected any religion, who believes everything is just random, pure chance, is still going to come along and say, oh, it was wrong to be in Vietnam. In fact, if they were like that, the more they were like that, the more they would say, be inclined to say it was wrong to be in Vietnam or wrong to, to go to Iraq or it's wrong to let people, uh, people suffer from genocide or famines or something like that. Well, on what basis? If everything is random and everything is pure chance and life is meaningless, then why does it matter? See, that... They, they can't live in a way that's consistent with their, with their basic assumption about life. So the only other answer is that life has some meaning and value. Well, if life has some meaning and value, how much? Does it have a little bit? Does it have a lot? 
you know, there's a variety and a spectrum of answers there that, that, that must be probed because if life has real meaning and value and purpose, then we need to define that, don't you think? So these are things that people should, should, uh, should think through, and there are ways to focus on these in, a, in conversations with people who are uh, seem to be searching for truth. Now, last time I pointed out that what, as believers, what this passage tells us is that whenever you're talking to an unbeliever, you're talking to you don't have to prove the existence of God. You may have to resurrect their suppressed knowledge of the existence of God, but you don't have to ultimately prove it because there's something inside of them that that when you start talking about it, that they're just trying to keep God in, you know, like a jack-in-the-box that keeps wanting to pop out, and they keep trying to stuff it back down, and every and every now and then you may get a lot of resistance because in there's a lot of anger related to that because if God, if the God of the Bible exists, then people who've rejected him and built their lifestyle on a on a ethic system that has rejected biblical values and biblical right and wrong they know they're in serious trouble and so they they can get extremely angry over the fact that you're bringing god up you just want to you just want to make them feel uncomfortable uh, that's why i pointed out that Theologically, this is a distinction between uh, what is called uh, general revelation, and it's not the same as natural revelation. Actually, I think I got that slide out of order. There's two categories of revelation. General revelation, which is the nonverbal disclosure from God as contained in his works of creation and providence. Uh, that is the universe, a molecule, a flower, the design of, the, of a giraffe's brain. Um, ever think about the fact that when a giraffe is, has his head up, that um, he's got a certain uh, blood pressure and a certain blood flow up and down that long neck, but then he bends his head down, his head goes from about 18 feet in the air all the way down to the ground, and with the function of gravity, all that, uh, all that blood can flow down that neck, and just pow, he could just have a hemorrhage in his brain right away. But there's a spongy mass at the base of the giraffe's brain that prevents that from happening so that it equalizes the flow of blood uh, into the brain. Now, I wonder how that evolved by chance. How many, how many giraffes were there who stroked out before uh, suddenly they... <laughs> something in there decided, hmm, let's, let's try to create this. I mean, it's just absurd. So... All of these kinds of things tell us something about that there is design and purpose in, in, in the universe. So, but it's nonverbal. It's just pictures. It's just images. This is an, it's clearly stated. The same idea is clearly stated in the Old Testament. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day-to-day utters speech. It com, it's a communication, but it's not a specific communication. It's sort of like the difference between going to a silent movie and then going to a talkie. All of a sudden, you really knew what the action was. Uh, day into day, utter speech. Night into night, reveals knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. No, it's universal. Every single person 
from the deepest, darkest corner of Africa or South America or Central America to the highest educated point of Cambridge or Oxford, uh, everybody from England to Japan to Australia, everybody knows this. It's universal. But it, it doesn't give the kind of information you need in order to get saved. It just gives you enough information to know there's a God that you're accountable to. Special revelation is the other term. This refers to the direct verbal self-disclosure of God to his creatures. Uh, that is like a theophany when God appeared to people in the Old Testament and spoke to them. Uh, the scriptures are special revelation. Non-recorded verbal. God said things to Moses that never made it into the text. God said things to uh, John the Apostle saw things in heaven related to the revelation that he was told to seal up and not to write down. So there's special revelation that was given but was not recorded. The problem is that when it goes from God's revelation of this to us, there's a distorter. In the, in the process, and that is the fact that we are sinners and we suppress the truth of, in unrighteousness. Je- Jeremiah 17, 9 talks about the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? Ecclesiastes, Solomon says there's an evil done in all that is done under the sun. The one thing, this one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Now, as I pointed out at the end last time, don't confuse general revelation and natural revelation. Uh, you often hear this, and this is an assumption in a lot of things, that you have the book of God, the Bible, and then you have the book of nature, and they have equal authority. See, always it comes down to authority. Suppression of, suppression of truth in unrighteousness is a rejection of authority. God doesn't have the right to tell me what, what's right and what's wrong or what's true. So there's a look at these two books, and biblically it should be this, the special revelation of God in the scripture tells us how to understand the book of nature because the book of nature is just a picture book. But what has happened since the the coming out of the enlightenment in the uh, 19th century is that you have this. The book of nature is elevated over the Bible. And so you get this mentality, all truth is God's truth, the emphasis on sociological truth, and, and empiricism. Now, Romans one twenty uses some critical vocabulary. It says that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. This is uh, the Greek word katharao, which means to see or perceive thoroughly so that uh, his attributes are clearly seen by everybody. By fallen men, clearly see it. Now, that seems to argue against that total inability concept that, that you have in, re, in Reformed thinkers. And then we're told they're clearly seen and that they're understood. And this is a verb, noeo, which is based on the, the noun nous, which has to do with thought. So it has to, these are clearly words of perception, words of understanding, and gaining insight into something. So that we, they're clearly perceived, his invisible attributes are clearly perceived, and they are understood by the things that are made. So there's real, true knowledge about God and his being that is at least enough 
to where every human being can be held accountable so that they are without excuse. And then verse 21 goes on to say, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, what's interesting is all through these verses, you have about 10 words that are related to knowledge. You have words like uh, nostos, which we saw in verse 20, uh, something that is... uh, uh, that in um, things that are clearly seen or they're understood. This is noeo. Um, In verse 20, also you have that these things are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made. Uh, These words indicate knowledge. So verse 21, because although they knew God, there's a word for knowledge. They knew God. This is the word gnosko, which conveys understanding, comprehension, perception. That although Paul says they knew God, it's not like they had, they didn't know God. They knew Him. There is clear understanding and knowledge of the existence of God. They did, they reject it. They make a volitional decision. They do, did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. See, arrogance, and ingratitude always go hand in hand. They were uh, ungrateful, and they, um, but became futile in their understanding. This is the Greek word uh, "matio," which means that something is rendered futile or made worthless. And it's in the passive voice which indicates that something acts upon their thinking to make it worthless. Now, what is it that acts upon their thinking that to make it worthless? When they suppress truth, the result of that is that their thought processes, their ability to understand truth and to reason truly, they can reason logically, but their starting point's off. So they can't reason truly if they have the wrong starting point. So their their rational systems are designed to suppress truth, not to get to truth. So no matter how much they talk about finding truth, they're trying to suppress it. And so the, that passive voice, what acts upon them is their suppression of truth, and that makes them futile or worthless in their thoughts. Now, here's another really good word here. This is the word dialogismos, where we get our word dialogue, and the basic meaning in Greek was the same as it is in English. It had to do with the conversation. But in the realm of philosophy, if you think about uh, the Peripatetics and Socrates and Aristotle and, and Plato, they use the word dialogismos to express this intellectual, rational conversation because they understood that when you are trying to understand and express that, understand the nature of reality and express that, and, and express that through your vocabulary, that what underlies every sentence is a system of logic. And if you just a very struct gr- grammar is a logical structure. The more you if you ever write and are subject to an editor who doesn't know what you're writing, you will discover how intensely logical grammar really is because they discover where you're not rational or logical and you have to rewrite things because you thought it said one thing and they said, no, it doesn't, you didn't say that. So all grammar is built on a system of logic. 
And so they understood that, that so in philosophy, this was the, they understood dialogismos meant the rational foundation of logical, coherent conversation and thought. So what Paul is saying here is that as a result of suppressing truth, then our, our thought processes, not just the content of our thought, but our reasoning processes become corrupted as a result of truth suppression. And so, and um, they become worthless in their in their thoughts and their foolish hearts. This is the word for foolish. Ah, sunetas means senseless or foolish. It's the uh, the the word sunesis refers to the faculty of comprehension or understanding. And here it's the asunutas, so it means foolish or senseless. Hearts, that's the thinking part of the soul, becomes darkened as a result not of sin in terms of their fallen state, but as a result of their suppression of truth. And the more truth suppression there is, the more the understanding becomes darkened. And the result is that professing to be wise, they became fools. How many times have you been impressed by the academic credentials of somebody who is completely wrong? You know, there, there's all kinds of uh, evolutionists, scientists, uh, economists who have two, three, four doctorates from the most exclusive universities in the world, but they've rejected God, so they profess to be wise, but God says they're a fool because their starting point is what? The psalmist said, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. When you start with the assumption that there is no God, then the result is foolishness no matter how erudite you may be, no matter how uh, academically proficient you have been in your career. The bottom line is it's foolish because it starts on the, from the wrong starting point. And so the question that we have to ask coming out of this is what is man's basic problem? Because if you're going to sit there and try to talk to an unbeliever, what's the basic problem you have to deal with? And this really gets into the, the real practicalities of, of, of communicating the gospel. Is the basic problem spiritual? Is the basic problem intellectual? If it's intellectual, then what do you need to do? You need to give them sophisticated arguments for the existence of God and the truth of the Scripture. If it's social, then what do you need to do? You need to socialize people. You need to come up with social problems, I mean social solutions, and re, re, uh, restructure society so that they can come to know the truth. If it's education, then you need to solve the education problem. But what Romans is saying is it's, it's not intellectual, social, or education. It's spiritual. They've rejected God. They're truth suppressors. And this is the same thing we see over in Ephesians 4.17, which I'll close with this just to hit it briefly. Paul said, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. He's using news here for mind, and he's using matayotes for futility, the same structures, the same kinds of vocabulary that he uses in Romans. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from their life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. So what we see is that there's a volition that takes place there that rejects God, 
and that sets on a course of action that darkens the thinking. Now, we're going to come, I want to come back next time because we need to think this through more in terms of just, it, it doesn't, it has to do with how we think about what we're doing when we're in the process of talking to an unbeliever. And also how we think when we're thinking about the process of understanding what's going on in the world around us and when you read editorials or you read opinions. And even though you might agree with somebody's opinion, you better stop and think about what's their basis for their argument. Because there's a lot of right conclusions that come from wrong arguments and wrong sources because they're starting at the wrong place. Just because they happen to end up in the right place is not necessarily... Uh, consistent with their with their with with truth as we understand it. So we'll come back next time and get into this just a little bit more. And then I'm going to talk about the how how do people know God? And a lot of times people go to the arguments for the existence of God. Well, are those really valid? And, and are they useful? And in what sense are they useful? And most of you have heard that taught at some point or another. But are the arguments for the existence of God of any use at all? And, and what are they? And that has great implications for understanding this whole issue related to uh, the design argument for, for, uh, for creation uh, as opposed to going to a biblical account. So we'll look at those issues uh, next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to think them through, and it's not always simple or easy, but we know that the more we understand what your Word says about the way sin has impacted our own thought processes, the more we're able to understand that and submit to the authority of your word and better understand and relate to the reality that's around us. So, Father, we pray that you just help us to understand these things and make them clear, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.